Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Education. I'm Trevor Matea, one of your hosts on the channel. Today we'll be talking to Andine Gross about her book, Restore the Respect, How to Mediate School Conflicts and Keep Students Learning. Andine, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Trevor. I'm delighted to be here. It's good to have you here. I'm wondering if we can begin the interview by having you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work. Sure. I am born and raised in Los Angeles, and I have been a product of public schools, large public Los Angeles schools, and then um, became trained to be a school psychologist, and I've worked as a public school psychologist for the last 30 years, and um, I started my career in um, Southern California with a wonderfully diverse group of students and families in places like L.A., Santa Monica, Malibu, and Oakland in Marion County. So I started in Southern California and then moved to Northern California. And then in 1993, I moved to the Midwest and became the school psychologist and student services department chair at a school of about 1,400 kids in Champaign, Illinois, called Centennial High School. And how did you come to write your book, Restore the Respect? So I have um, been, as as I said, a school psychologist for quite some time. And one way to think about the role of a school psychologist is that you're kind of in, you know, a little, I want to say sequestered off a little, little bit because you're working with a lot of students with um, special education. You're working with kids with um, who've been referred, who people are very worried about because of social or emotional or um, any kind of, you know, disabilities or suspected disabilities, learning disabilities, autism, uh, anything. So we're, we're kind of always working with um, a certain sector of kids, and it's, it's really a pleasure, and also kids in crisis. And, um, but I always wanted to be the school psychologist who isn't stuck in an office just doing testing. I wanted to be out taking in things like school climate and how people are relating to one another, and also thinking a lot about social justice and if our practices are equitable for all students. And um, because I've worked in diverse locations, I've seen that there's always kids who seem to get in trouble a lot and get kind of in the discipline uh, cycle. And um, what happens is that kids just repeatedly get in trouble, and then they get punished, and then they get in trouble again, and then they get punished. And what ends up happening is they miss a lot of school, and there isn't any improvement. So... Um, when my daughters, I'm the mother of twins, and when the kids went to school, to college, I had some time on my hands, and just kind of on a fluke, I decided to go back to school to learn more about schools as a whole and education as a whole. So I got a master's degree in educational policy organization and leadership from the University of Illinois with the idea that maybe I'd become a school administrator. But um, so one of my first tasks there was to ask, what are the best practices? What are the best ways we can address school discipline and things like that? And my professor gave me this withered look and said, there's no such thing as best practices. So 
that was kind of a, um, I, 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 it was funny. It's kind of funny that she said that because I was so bright-eyed and bushy-tailed thinking like this would really round out my education and I would just learn what to do. And um, so that was, that was kind of a challenge in a good way. So um, I also, with my free time, took mediation training in the community because I wanted to sort of give back. So I learned um, some mediation techniques through a grassroots organization called Prairie Land Conflict Resolution Center. And kind of those two things percolated with me for a while, and I decided that I wanted to try something. I wanted to adapt one of the mediation techniques I learned in my training to use with teacher and student conflict. Because the one thing I kept seeing over and over again was kids who just shut down on their teachers. They'd get in trouble. They'd get sent out of class. They'd come back. They'd get in more trouble. They'd say, my teacher hates me. The teacher would say, this student doesn't care. And it would just, you know, happen over and over and nothing would happen in the teacher-student relationship to help them mend their relationship. So I wanted to see what would happen if we tried mediating teacher and students together, and I piloted that in 2011. And that's what I wrote the book about because it was so successful. In order for our listeners, I think, to sort of understand and appreciate your mediation approach to handling conflict in schools, I was hoping if you could just share some examples of what sorts of conflicts do emerge in schools and what are some common approaches that teachers or administrators might take to handling them. So a typical conflict that might happen in a high school is a disruptive behavior by the student. Um, maybe the student is talking and won't be quiet, or maybe the student is on their cell phone and they wouldn't put it away and they won't put it away. Or maybe the teacher redirects the student and the student mouths back at the teacher with back talk and maybe even using profanity. So something that kind of is beyond, um, you know, just a correctable behavior that is corrected with one teacher prompt. So kind of a persistent pattern of, of misbehavior, so to speak. So those are the typical things that get a student what's called a, in our school a DR, a discipline referral. And um, if a student gets a discipline referral, they're sent to the office. And the dean or the assistant principal who's an administrator has a talk with them and maybe calls their parent and maybe gives them detention time so they don't go back to that class for maybe a day. And depending on the infraction, maybe they stay out one day, two days, three days. Um, and then they do go back. And then, you know, maybe they've missed work or they don't know where the classroom is and their instructions, so they get lost and maybe they get frustrated again and maybe they start talking again or maybe they're angry at the teacher because they got sent, sent out in the first place because they might believe that other people were talking, but they're the ones that got punished. Hmm. So there's all this sort of mixture of emotions um, with some kids and they go back and maybe it just doesn't fix the problem at all because nothing's been done to just sort of help the teacher and student understand each other's perspective or mend the risk that caused them to be sent out in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so it sounds like it's a, it's a mix of uh, being talked to and being put in time out. You know, I, I don't want to be lectured or I, when I was in school, I didn't want to be lectured by my teachers or principals. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to get in trouble. Um, mm -hmm. But as you sort of alluded, like that's not working um, at least for a lot of kids. It's not the deterrent that adults might hope it to be. And, and so like, well, where do these approaches come from? Do, do people realize they're not working? 
Well, it's funny you said that, you know, you didn't want to be talked to by an adult. And I think for about 80% of students, that's true. They don't want to get a negative consequence. So they learn how to behave. Um, they learn how not to, you know, get the teacher angry. They know how to follow rules. Um, and, and that's fine. And, and that's why discipline works. And there's nothing that says that a, a slight punishment or discipline, you know, a consequence isn't a good thing because it does teach a lesson and it teaches people to behave better. But for about 20% of kids, the natural consequences that come with a misbehavior don't work, and um, it can be for a variety of reasons. It might be that, you know, their level of social skills is not the same. It might be that they're dealing with some very strong factors in their personal life, such as trauma or um, some home stressors and challenges, poverty, um, I mean, you name it, I, I list in the book just the many, many things that our students carry with them that make it not always possible to bounce back and be resilient when it comes to having their behavior corrected. Mm-hmm. So that is kind of the population that I refer to mostly in the book that we're working with is the kids who need extra. They might need extra support, extra teaching, extra um, skill building, and also to see the modeling of what effective problem-solving communication looks like. If you're in one of these traditional schools and like yeah. you, they're sort of seeing this 80-20 breakdown. And so mm-hmm. this this uh, this approach that we've been talking about, this traditional approach to discipline, seems to work for about 80% of kids. And then there's mm-hmm. 20% who it doesn't seem to work for. How are other people sort of uh, approaching that realization? Well, that's sort of the, that's the million-dollar question because um, – Across the country, not just in our school, but across the country, people are recognizing that, quote-unquote, zero-tolerance policies don't work because what ends up happening is that kids are missing instruction, and it's really affecting their education and contributing to dropout rates and contributing to overall costs for society because when you have an uneducated you know, populace, you're having greater health problems, possibly greater crime. And the worst-case scenario is what's called the school-to-prison pipeline, which is where students who are often African-American males or students with disabilities are punished the most, and um, especially now in schools where school school resource officers might not always be humanistic in their approach, Mm. we're losing kids. And um, so there's kind of a a real call to action across the country to develop more social, emotional, and restorative practices to really, really hone in and build relationships with kids, build trust and rapport, and and really support them so that they can, um, you know, just function better. And and I have found that um, mediation with teachers and students does this beautifully, and, and that's why I was so excited to share out this idea with other educators I often, when talking to teachers who have worked in schools for a long time, they'll sort of describe a pendulum um, with the curriculum that swings back and forth, these different approaches to teaching. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm curious, is, is mediation and social-emotional learning something that was in vogue uh, 10 or 20 or 30 years ago, or is it something that's um, newer? I mean, this approach to discipline, is this something that had been done before, or is it something that it's worked outside of schools and now we're bringing it into schools? Well, it really, um, I think there's been a, the social emotional learning has probably been a, been around for like 20 years, you know, articulated in that sort of way. Um, and I think that 
um, RTI, you know, response to intervention or multi-tiered systems of approach, MTSS. There's all these acronyms in education or PBIS, positive behaviors, interventions, and supports. There's all these kind of ways of thinking about behavioral um, approaches that are aimed at being systematic and really sort of developing the skills of everybody. So, um, I know that depending on the region of the country where you might live, things are practiced differently. So, for example, Oakland, California has been doing restorative justice things like peace circles and mediations and, and things and peer juries. Um, other places are starting to learn about these things now. Um, peer mediation was really big, you know, 10, 20 years ago where kids would be trained to mediate among their peers for, um, you know, peer-student conflict kinds of things. But Honestly, this was the first teacher-student mediation in the way I present in this book. I, I didn't find anything that directly um, related to this type of approach, and it's super simple, and that's why I wanted to share out because it really kind of tweaked the traditional model that somebody like a school psychologist or school counselor might do or even a school administrator like, okay, let's just get everyone in a room to talk. You know, teacher-student, you've got a conflict. Most of the time, there would be no talk at all because the teacher, the student would just be sent back to class and be told to be better. You know, everyone would say, look, just do what the teacher says and there won't be any problems, and the student would be sent back to class. But um, there was really no opportunity for the teacher and student to delve into what created the problem in the first place. And our schools, especially typical public schools, are not designed with this type of communication in mind because their teachers are teaching bell to bell, five to eight classes a day, uh, four-minute passing periods, 25 kids standing around. So it's not conducive to this type of, you know, problem solving. So some districts, um, you know, have built in periods in the day where there's quote-unquote advisory periods or periods where maybe some communication can occur. But um, I think that there's all these trends in education, as you mentioned, and when the trends are toward academic achievement and higher test scores or higher, you know, SAT scores or ACT scores, um, schools are not really all about the touchy-feely stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sometimes you have, you've got to really carve out or really make the case for the need for these practices. And sometimes you're kind of coming from... Um, you know, the student services staff, like the school counselors, psychologists, or social workers, or sometimes a visionary administrator who really gets it. But most administrators are really under the gun to have high academic achievement. Only now is there a trend, I think, because of some, um, like in the state of Illinois, there's something called Senate Bill 100 that says basically, hey, we are all recognizing that um, there's a disproportionate amount of students who are being suspended and expelled, sometimes for ambiguous infractions, and such as, um, you know, that, that isn't always clear, and there's, there's bias, there's um, inherent bias, possible, um, you know, possibly along racial lines, and we have to address it. We have to come up with ways to build relationships and deal with um, unconscious bias along racial lines or and, and, and really um, make sure that we're teaching all students. Something I'm, I'm interested to hear you speak more about is how we can take sort of a, a personalized approach to, to discipline or conflict and treat people differently, you know, responding to their needs. I think that's really what I've learned after 
all of my decades as being a school psychologist and going to graduate school and being sort of laughed at that there isn't a best practice. And that is, it is individualized. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I was so astonished by was just putting the teacher and student together in a very structured way, which I describe in the book. Um, the idiosyncrasies that come out that a third party, such as someone in a consultant role, would never in a million years have thought of. And so it really is individualized. You know, what time of day does this class meet? Who else is in the class? What kind of, you know, sort of um, background or experience is the student bringing that day, that hour, or that year, or any number of things? What is the teacher bringing to that day, that period, that group of kids? Um, So, and then... Once you identify some of those factors, like what in particular does a student respond to and not respond to? So say, for example, a student puts their head down. Um, does that student want the teacher to say, Johnny, put your head up? Or does, that teacher, or does that student want the teacher to come over to them and say, Johnny, is everything okay? Or does the student want the teacher to tap them on the shoulder and give them a shake? I mean, just those three different scenarios can get such different reactions. There's some kids who freak out if a teacher touches them on the shoulder, and they might, you know, jump up and say, you know, get your effing hands off of me. Or another student might hate it when a teacher calls their name at the front of the class. Or another student might, you know, be really uncomfortable if this teacher says, are you okay? You know, you never know until you ask. And so what mediation does, and that's just one small example, but gives the teacher and student an opportunity to identify um, their personalized ways of, of functioning most effectively. How do you get the parties involved to be candid in that way? Because I, I think sort of at best, it's sort of an awkward thing, at least uh, if it's your first time being part of a mediation. And then at, at worst, students are recognizing that there's a power differential between them and their teacher. And so how, how do you get students to, to say what their preferences and needs are? Well, you know, um, it's a really good that you're asking about that power differential because that's a perception that a lot of people initially have when they hear about teacher-student mediation. And I have to say that when we introduced teacher-student mediation at a faculty meeting back in 2011, I personally was expecting teachers to march into the principal's office to say, what the heck is this? We're not going to do this. But nobody did, and I think that they were kind of intrigued. And here is where the time on honored principles of mediation really um, show themselves because it's not like the mediator is so talented. It's just that the mediator is following the principles of mediation, which is, first of all, setting the tone and the climate of the meeting in an extremely positive way with lots of thanks and praise to the two parties for being there. Um, The mediator is really in charge of the climate of that meeting and creating a positive problem-solving space and a supportive space. So aside from smiling and, you know, using thanks and praise, the mediator, um, you know, talks about the fact that it's going to be a confidential meeting, it's a voluntary meeting, um, their role is going to be impartial, and whatever the participants want to talk about is up to them, and the structure is really easy, you know, the the student and the teacher will just be invited to speak only to the mediator at first and say what brought them there. And then there, the mediator will use a lot of reflective listening and a lot of supportive statements and a lot of, you know, empathy being expressed to really say, like, wow, you know, it sounds like this was a really stressful experience. Um, how did this make you feel? 
Um, what would you like to see happen? Whatever, whatever the prompting questions are, which I go into a lot in the book about, you know, what the mediator can say, but really providing a supportive venue for that person to just get their story out, so to speak. And meanwhile, the other person is listening and learning a heck of a lot they didn't know before because now they're getting all the backstory of whatever happened, but also built into the mediation is a chance to foster some positive statements. So to say, like, well, tell me something that happened before this conflict that was positive, or what kinds of things have you observed, or what do you like about this, you know, student or this teacher? And and that's really ends up being one of the most healing aspects of the meeting is people find out, like, oh, that person doesn't hate me, or oh, this person actually noticed something really cool that I did once. And that goes both ways. So I have found that the teachers are as healed in these meetings as the students because they assume the kids don't like them, and but it turns out that they weren't necessarily the problem at all. And I have a little post-it note on my desk that um, says she cares because a teacher told me once after mediation that when I said to, you know, the student we were mediating with, well, tell me something, you know, about Ms. Brown as a teacher. And the student said, she cares. <laughs> and the teacher later told me that, that those two words were going to get her through the rest of the school year. You know, because that teacher didn't know that the student thought that. Mm-hmm. And so the same token, the student sitting there and finding out that the teacher has observed all kinds of things about them, like, oh, they're better in, in arithmetic than they are in English, or some something, you know, really minor, but a lot of students, especially in high school, think they're invisible. And to mm-hmm. know that the teacher has shown up for this meeting and cares enough about them to show up and has actually observed all kinds of things about them, they're pretty astonished, too. And... It really, um, just listening to one another's story is, is so enlightening, especially because those positive things are brought out, and the mediator is thanking and praising them both for being there, and then at the end, um, inviting them to speak directly to each other after all this information has been sort of summarized, and, and then the mediator sits back and the two of them just go to town because they know everything about the class and about, you know, the different um, practices in the class, so they can come up with all kinds of ideas or the mediator can help support, you know, and here's where you can consult a little bit if you've got some ideas that they maybe they haven't thought of, but um, it's just pretty, um, it, it's just a lot of fun to, to just let people be themselves and express what they need and feel and want. And I have found that the power thing just kind of evaporates because it becomes more of a human meeting than anything else. And, and, I've never had a complaint from a teacher afterwards, and no no teacher has ever gone to the principal of my school to say, "Wow, this was you know terrible." It, it, it's usually just the opposite. They thank me, and they're so excited, and you know we're getting really good data because we measure effectiveness of these meetings if there's no more discipline referrals from the teacher to the student. And um, we were showing, like for the first three years of doing this, that over eighty percent of the time. There were no more discipline referrals from the teachers to the student after this meeting. So um, we were seeing some real nice results. I wanted to get back to something you said earlier about uh, bias that may exist with traditional school discipline. This approach is, uh, is more personalized and individualized. I'm thinking that a critic might say, you know, if you're not doing a one size fits all approach, how do you ensure that there is no bias? Yes, um, so that was kind of the thinking behind zero tolerance. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I give an example in in my book about um, 
like let's say zero tolerance about no weapons in school. I mean, that's kind of a no-brainer. Obviously, if you bring a weapon in school, that's a really serious offense, and that, you know, under zero tolerance would be immediately expellable. Um, you know, then it becomes, well, what if the student has um, a cognitive or, you know, intellectual impairment, or what if the student was bullied, or what if the student was trying to protect themselves, and what if it was a butter knife, and what if, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. I, and I'm not trying to say, you know, that this is to be soft on crime, but there are always individualized mitigating circumstances, and I think that everybody sort of examines the fact that, you know, comparing, it's not an apples-to-apples situation um, with any child, and um, I, I think that it's like, are you are you uh, winning the battle and losing the war, you know? Um, I, I I am not against discipline. I'm not against consequences at all, but I do want there to be teachable moments and human moments and healing moments, even with someone does get, you know, in the disciplinary cycles. Um, because once a student really feels that a teacher cares about them at that human level, they do behave better for that teacher. There is no doubt about it. And all the research says that students perform best when they believe their teacher cares about them. But in a class of, you know, 25 kids, Teachers don't always get a chance to develop that rapport, and there's a wonderful TED Talk, going back to the um, discussion of, you know, racial bias or whatever, there's a wonderful TED Talk by an author named Adichie, I don't know if I'm saying her name right, but it's called The Danger of a Single Story, and, you know, where she talks about just how we don't know each other very well, and we make assumptions based on the single story, so... In a high school, it might be, or in a middle school, it might be the student who doesn't care. You know, that's one story. Oh, he just doesn't care. Or it could be the mean teacher or the teacher who hates, you know, the student. And so if you have a teacher and student who really embrace those beliefs, um, that's a single story that they're going to stick with, and they never get a more multidimensional view of one another. And that's what mediation can accomplish is just bringing in the fact that um, this teacher was having a hard day and this teacher's father was in the hospital that week. And, and, and that's the other thing that comes out of mediations is once the teachers relax a little, they, they share out their feelings and some of their experiences. And often both teachers and students will take responsibility for their actions that were less than perfect. Mm-hmm. And I just want to share a quick story of, of one of the first things that blew my mind during mediations was when a student, um, a high school student, picture, you know, maybe a 15-year-old girl, was um, open the mediation by saying that her teacher, Mr. Garcia, was unfair because he sent her out of class when another student was doing the same thing. And she didn't think it was right, and so we talked a bit. And, and there was no problem with the teacher. The teacher is a good teacher, but it was just, you know, that day it just really felt unfair. So when it was the Mr. Garcia's turn to talk, he said, you know, I was listening to this student and I realized she's right. I did send her out and someone else was doing the exact same thing. And as I was listening to her, I was trying to think, why did I do that? Why did I send her out and not the other student? And he said, and I realized that the other student makes me laugh and does his work and I did treat him. I did. I was more lenient with him, and that's just wrong. And I, I really see where she's coming from, and I know now why she thinks that was unfair. And I'm so glad I, I know that now, and I'm I'm going to be really careful about that in the future. So it's like, whoa! And the student and I were just shocked. Like, wow! Did a teacher really just do that? Um, and I have seen this now numerous times where students will 
express regret or even apologize for their misbehavior, even though no one's forcing them to do it. And same thing with teachers. You know, teachers will say, I was having a bad day, and sometimes I have this tone of voice, and I, I know that I, I don't want to be using that tone of voice, and I'm, you know, I'm really working on it or something. So, so the larger issue is these life skills of how do you make amends? How do you move forward? How do you resolve conflict? So that's what I love about these meetings, too, is that the conflict that brought them in is almost the least of it. The bigger picture is, you know, how do, how do people navigate sticky situations and improve upon them and move forward? I'm wondering if you can talk about what the structures for a mediation look like. Um, so what, what happens at the beginning, the middle, and the end of a, most mediations? So the mediations follow a really simple format. Um, I describe in the book how I just, um, it's always voluntary. So I make sure that I, I send an email to the teacher, hey, you know, I've been asked to do a mediation with you and um, Sarah. Is that okay with you? And if so, when? And so the teacher says, okay, I'm free, period two or period seven. So then I go to Sarah. I say, hi, um, I've been asked to do a mediation with you and Miss Jones. She's free, periods two and seven. Do either of those work for you? Um, do you have any questions about what mediation is? And they usually say, no, it's okay. So then they both show up. I know nothing as a mediator about their backstory, and I don't want to know their backstory. So mm. the, that's what makes this an easy practice for school practitioners is that it's not a lot of paperwork and not a lot of prep. It's just a real-time meeting. So the two people come in. I welcome them. I offer them a snack. I say, here's what we're going to do today. I'm going to ask each of you to speak only to me and tell me what brought us here. While one person is talking, the other person can just sit back, relax, and listen. And then um, I'll be taking notes and asking um, questions, and I'll summarize as we're kind of going along. And then when um, one person is finished, then the next person will be able to do the exact same thing. And then after both parties have spoken, I'll kind of summarize what I've heard and then invite the two of you to speak directly to each other to develop your plan to move forward. The only rules are only one person talks at a time, no interrupting and no put-downs. Um, what we talk about here is confidential. Uh, this meeting is voluntary. As a mediator, I am impartial, which means I don't take sides. And the last concept is called self-determination, and that means that whatever you choose to talk about is up to you. Any questions? You know, and then who would like to go first? And that's just, and then you're off. And um, I, we usually allot 15 minutes a 15-minute typical class period for this meeting. Um, and that really is a nice amount of time to really relax and let people kind of talk. And so I talk a lot in the book about, you know, kind of how to manage the various things that might come up in these meetings and also how to navigate the climate in case it does get a little tense at times. Um, a lot of times feelings come out. Um, also just some some questions to keep things going. So um, sort of the art of mediation is just to really keep it a positive, forward-moving meeting and, um, and to make it an effective meeting so that people feel good about what they've shared and um, are, are more, you know, um, kind of so that trust is built between the two parties because they've gotten to know each other and understood each other better and, and have shown that positive intention of wanting to make things better. And it's one of those things that just showing up, you know, you've, you've solved it about 95% because they showed up. You know, the teacher and the student had the agency to come to this meeting 
even though they might not have known anything about it, even though they might have been nervous, but the fact that they showed up, and I make a big deal about that, like, wow, this is so great that you're both willing to be here. Thank you so much. It takes courage to be willing to have a conversation like this. This is so great. You know, so it's just, it's a very positive meeting. It's infused with a lot of positive energy and, um, and it's just, they're fun. They're really fun to do. I, I appreciate that the structure is really simple, but mm-hmm. I also can appreciate that mediating is, is a skill and mm-hmm. something that you improve on at the more that you do it. And so mm-hmm. I, I'm wondering what you would look for in a mediator or what advice you would offer to a mediator. Yes. So the first thing you have to do is um, be comfortable with the fact that emotion will come out and to be comfortable with that. Um, so when I've been doing trainings, people who are already counselors or school psychologists or school social workers, they're, they're very comfortable to just jump right, jump right in and do mediations. Other people who don't necessarily communicate with people in their work life in that emotional realm might not be as comfortable, but I believe a lot of people just have those natural emotional intelligence skills. So, so the main thing is to be, you know, warm, very, very warm and nice and smiling <laughs> to make sure people are comfortable and also to have that natural empathy so that when people start to tell you their story, you, you show care for them um, and you show understanding. And that comes through with your tone of voice. It comes through with your body language. And also that um, awareness of reading other people's emotion and body language so you can pick up on it. So if one person is talking but you see out of the corner of your eye that someone else is slumped in their chair, you know, it's okay to say, oh, just hold on a second. Hey, are you okay? You know, I noticed that you just kind of reacted just then. And, you know, do you want to, should we take a break? Should we take a pause? Do you want to talk now or do you want to wait until, you know, this person finishes. So, so just kind of really being aware and tuned into what's going on in the room. So, um, so I think those, those things are important. And, um, but mainly just having that comfort level of, of just knowing that if somebody starts to cry or if somebody gets, you know, um, quiet, you know, you just know what to do to kind of keep moving things forward. And, and it's okay to even stop the mediation if that's what's needed. So, so just that type of thing. And I think that does come with experience, but also the confidence to maybe just, um, you know, throw in a joke or just throw in a funny story because sometimes you have to lighten the mood and you say, Oh, let's leave this topic for a minute. You know, this reminds me of something else, blah, blah, blah. So, so some spontaneity is important too. At your school, is there any precedent for students calling mediations with each other or with adults at school, like, say, a teacher and another teacher or a teacher and a parent? Yes. Um, What ended up happening at my school is that because we were seeing such positive results between teacher-student mediation, we started to expand it to um, student-student mediation led by an adult mediator. And those got even better results because we measured our um, effectiveness as to whether there were any more discipline referrals between the students because of conflict or bullying or something like that. And so we, our numbers in student mediations just skyrocketed because these were meetings that, and I, I have a chapter in the book devoted to how to do student mediations, but um, we have a lot of people doing the student mediations and they can be quick and students often will ask for them because they'll come to school and there'll be something that blew up on Facebook um, or threats or I'm going to beat this person up or whatever it is. And we quickly get them, you know, we ask again because it is voluntary and we invite them to do mediation and they do it and it's over sometimes in 10 minutes. Um, 
and I have some sample contracts in the book that kids can sign to leave each other alone if that's, you know, what the solution is. So those mediations aren't necessarily to make everyone best friends again, but to definitely, again, um, let them determine where they want to go with their relationship, but also to promise not to be disruptive and, um, you know, leave each other alone if that's the solution. So, yeah, we do a lot of student mediations, and students often ask. Students can ask for the teacher student mediation. Um, we offer mediations for adults. I devote a whole chapter to what I call the next frontier, which is adult mediation in schools, because I think that in any work location, including schools, adults can just have different philosophies or different approaches, and there can be misunderstandings because of an email or any number of glitches. And that I think that there's a place for mediation between adults and schools, fellow educators, between parents and educators, and so forth. And um, again, it has to be, an, you know, the mediator has to be perceived as impartial, which doesn't mean that they can't work there, but they definitely have to be someone who is, who really is impartial. So it seems like this structure has been a great success at your school. I'm wondering what challenges uh, did you run into as you were trying to implement this new structure? Um, you know, th- that was the thing that got me so excited about it is that it was just so much easier than I thought it would be. Um, some, I, you know, we did do some surveys of teachers and there were some complaints about it. Sometimes it takes, um, a few days to, uh, schedule the mediation. So, um, and, but it's just the type of thing where, um, you know, you just do the best you can, um, and, I didn't really face that many challenges. The first year we introduced it in a school of like 1,400 people. I think I did 38. Mm-hmm. The next year I did 34. And then the third year I did 57. And then the year after that, I, and this isn't in the book because I only talk about the first three years, but we're now on year six of doing this. I did 80, I think I did 87 last year. So, I mean, mm-hmm. it's really utilized. It just becomes part of the culture of the school and it affects the whole school climate because everybody knows that this option is available. Mm. And by the way, like I said, it's voluntary, so nobody has to do it. It's suggested as an option. (coughs) And a lot of teachers nowadays, especially um, I think with the way teaching is going and it drawing from the Charlotte Danielson model, that being a reflective teacher and really working on relationships with your students is an expectation. And um, any school district that that follows the Danielson model knows that teachers are going to be evaluated based on the work they do to develop relationships with all their students. And so when a teacher shows that good faith effort to come to a mediation, they can write about that in their evaluation and saying, you know, I had trouble connecting with um, Sally, so I went to mediation and I learned this about Sally's background that I didn't realize before, and I'm going to now approach Sally in this other way, in this new way, because I learned some things. So it's just a really great way to get to know your students and uh, for the students to get to know their teachers at a more human level. So um, I think that I've just been so surprised at how easy it was. And sometimes I'm just astonished that one 50-minute meeting can completely reverse a very negative crash course um, between a teacher and student because of a misread situation or a glitch. It's just, it can be the most minor thing. You know, maybe the way a teacher passed out a paper to a student and the student perceived that as an insult and the teacher wasn't even aware. And, and then like, oh, that, you know, and then it's like a light bulb moment and then everyone's good to go because the rest of the meeting was about developing rapport and talking about hobbies and talking about other things besides the way the paper was passed out.
Andi, we've taken up a lot of your time, so I just wanted to ask you a couple more questions. First, sure. what, are, what are three other books that you would recommend if our listeners have enjoyed our conversation and enjoy your book, Restore the Respect? Well, one of the things that I think a lot of public educators um, know is that our students come from very diverse backgrounds with very different needs, and a lot of times educators are of a different background than the students they work with. And one of the things that came out in my book was that 80% of the um, students who participated in teacher-student mediation were African-American, and most of the teachers were white. So I really believe that there's wonderful books about that that teach educators sort of how to understand their student populations better. Um, One is called Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria and Other Conversations About Race. Um, this is really a classic. It's in its fifth edition now, and it's by Beverly um, Daniel Tatum, T-A-T-U-M. Another book um, along those lines is Black Males and Racism by Terrence Fitzgerald. Terrence is a professor at USC, and he's his background is as a social worker, and um, he did a lot of interviews of black males about their experiences in schools, and it's a real eye-opener, and I think it's it's really good reading. And then the last book I would recommend is just, again, a classic of, it's called How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk. Um, During my entire career as a school psychologist, when people said, you know, what's the best parenting book or just the best book to learn how to communicate with children, this was bar none my favorite and it's still my favorite. So it's called How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk by Adele Faber and Elaine Maslish. And um, it's been around for decades, but it's just still good. And it's got a lot of cartoons in it. So even if you don't like reading, you can just look at the cartoons and learn a lot. Because really what they did was draw upon basic um, therapeutic techniques and reflective listening skills and things that are um, a good way to draw out conversation so kids express themselves. Finally, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what your next project might be and how we can follow your work? Sure. I am actually concluding my career as a school psychologist. I'm retiring at the end of this school year, and I have been tapped to continue to do training in mediation through our um, Illinois Regional Office of Education. But I am thrilled to go anywhere and do uh, trainings or consulting on mediation, and it's really become my um, kind of my project of giving back to the community. So I am really willing to um, do this to really anyone, anywhere. And I'd love to continue this work because I really believe in it. Um, I think our children deserve all the understanding and our teachers deserve respect. And it's just a great way to build relationships and, and foster that understanding in school settings. So um, my, I have a Twitter account called at Dean Talks. I have a Restore the Respect Facebook page. And um, people can follow me that way, and I'd love to hear from your listeners. I'm excited that you'll have an opportunity to, to share this with, with even more uh, teachers in schools. Uh, yes, uh, I'm excited, too. Dean, I, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I've enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much, Trevor. I'm really excited to have talked to you today. Mm-hmm. 